Hello, and welcome to Molly Catherine Reads. If you're here, you may have found a link to this podcast on my Tumblr, Molly Catherine, or Molly Catherine Writes. I also have a, a blog over at mollycatherinereads.blogspot.com, and you can find me over on iTunes under the title Molly Catherine Reads. Today, what I'm going to be doing is something I have explored on another podcast, which is doing a little bit of fan fiction. Um, so today is going to be fan fiction by threes. So what I'll be reading today are three different mini fics or ficlets, as they are sometimes called. Um, one each from three different fandoms. The first fandom that I'll read a story from is one of my uh, most recent um, obsessions, uh, which is from the TV show Chasing Life. So that's going to be this first ficlet I'll be reading. And to set it up, um, the story is about two girls. Uh, one is named Greer and the other is named Brenna. And Brenna has recently found out that her sister has cancer. And what happens is she she goes to Brenna, or to Greer, excuse me, on this night, and um, she she asks for something that's a little hard for her to ask for. So that's what this first story will be. And then I'll introduce the other stories as we come to them. So this first story, uh, part of a larger subset of stories called It Started With a Smile. And this ficlet is titled, It Happened One Night. She hadn't meant to text Greer. Honestly, her finger had just slipped. But now that the other girl's warmth was pressing against her side, now that those fingers were squeezing her shoulder in a comforting, easy fashion, Brenna wondered why she had ever hesitated. Kieran was good. His lips were soft. His face was pretty. His convictions were strong. But maybe his lips just weren't soft enough. Maybe his face didn't smile as often as Brenna needed. Maybe his convictions were too strong. It had been two years since her father left. Two years since she'd heard his goofy optimism in spite of burnt scrambled eggs or his light and easy advice or his laugh so full of life. And Brenna had felt emptiness at his passing. Of course she had, but she had filled that dead or dying space up. She had filled it to the brim and the closest filling at hand had been cynicism disdain, scorn, maybe a little bit of hate if she was being honest with herself. And Kieran, he he was all of those things wrapped up in a prettily tattooed package. My sister has cancer had been met with a hastily proclaimed it's a government conspiracy man. And really, why had she even been surprised? Greer was soft, 
And Brenna wasn't just thinking that because she was so comfortable in that moment being held. She'd hustled the girl on the tennis court, watched her twist her ankle and still hit the turf with a smile on her face. She rolled with every sarcastic, underhanded punch Ford threw at her, and she had the guts to wear head-to-toe pink. She was a mystery to Brenna, one that she might have understood better in a different life. But there was one thing Brenna had been certain of. She was scared of being comforted, scared of needing comfort, and she knew Kieran wasn't the person to go to for this particular brand. So her finger, it had slipped. She had asked, and Greer hadn't hesitated, not for a single second. Brenna had made a valiant effort to hold back the tears, but they came all the same. They rushed from her body, sweet relief given form. This didn't make things better, there wasn't much that could. But this made things lighter. Every second felt like an eternity, so prolonged and somehow quietly important. Yet time also seemed to fly by, and Brenna started to feel guilty. I shouldn't keep you any longer, she muttered. The side of her face was still pressing into Greer's jacket. She kept her eyes shut tightly. Neither of them made a move to pull away, despite her words. It's okay, Greer simply replied. So they sat a while longer, and the silence continued to surround them a comforting veil of friendship, and of something more, maybe, something that Brenna was still trying to understand. There was something about this girl, something that made it easy to ask for and to accept comfort. And while that felt good, so very, very good, it also felt ridiculously scary. Brenda knew she was a lot like her sister in that regard. It wasn't easy for them to ask, and it was even harder for them to receive. An uneasiness filled her stomach, manifesting like butterflies, she'd say, if she had to pin the filling down. Kieran was not fun, exactly, but he was what Brenna expected of herself. Greer was the opposite in every way possible, and Brenna found herself wondering if she was strong enough to redefine almost her entire existence. Again... It's a long walk, Brenna finally whispered. She could have kicked herself for feeling the need to end the moment. It had been so easy she could have gotten lost in it. And maybe that was why she spoke up. Let me walk you back to your car. As she pulled back, she hesitated to look Rear in the eye. Pity, that's probably what she would see. Or else a weird, unbearable kind of sympathy. But... Brenna had to know. A part of her wanted to see, if only to test her own sense of judgment. Had this all been a mistake? Should she have handled her feelings on her own? Brenna looked up. She felt residual wetness from her tears caught in her eyelashes. She blinked, wondering how pathetic she must look to the other girl. She braced herself, held her breath. 
And when Brenna caught sight of that bright smile, those sparkling eyes, that radiance, she wondered why she had ever expected anything else. Maybe it wouldn't be so bad to reprogram herself a bit. It's not that long of a walk, but I'd appreciate the company. Do you need a ride home? Brenna could have pinched herself. Her smile was too wide. She just knew it. Yeah, that'd be great. They walked side by side all the way back to the parking lot. Their shoulders kept bumping, and they would smile softly, shyly at the other every single time. But Greer was clearly following Brenna's lead, essentially keeping things subdued and silent between them. Brenna didn't know how to express her gratitude, how to explain that it was exactly what she needed right then. Sitting in the passenger seat of Greer's car, Brenna felt cold. They'd been in contact ever since Greer had wrapped her arm around Brenna's shoulder, and now the eight inches of interior between them felt like a mile. Brenna pressed the palms of her hands against her thighs as they pulled out of the parking lot, willing herself not to beg for the connection to be back in place. But just like that, Greer's hand was resting on top of hers. It was a simple gesture, but Brenna could have burst into tears at the instant relief she felt. She would have, actually, if Greer hadn't started to sing along to the latest Katy Perry song at the top of her lungs still contemplating how to explain how important this all had been. Brenna found them back at her home all too soon. The car stopped, the radio was switched off, and Greer was turned slightly towards her in the driver's seat. And still, they were quiet. Brenna took a deep, shuddering breath to steady herself. Then she turned, looked directly into that unwavering gaze, and said the only words worth saying. Thank you. Greer smiled. Of course she did. Any time, Brenna. She squeezed Brenna's hand softly, clearly waiting on the cue, signifying that the moment was completely over. Brenna found some bravery deep within herself, and she placed her right hand over Greer's, rubbing the smooth skin of the girl's wrist with her thumb. And then she got the hell out of there. What would Ford say? What would Kieran say? But with every step towards her front porch, Brenna realized that she was already caring less and less about the answers to those questions. The next story that I'll be reading is um, related to the Carmilla fandom, and Um, Carmilla is a uh, novella that was written long ago, back before even Dracula, and I mentioned Dracula because there are definitely vampires involved, Um, but the Carmilla in regards to this story is specifically the web series Carmilla that can be found on YouTube. And so this story that I'm going to read, a little longer, and it is regarding three of the main characters of the series. Um, It's very AU, or alternate universe. So now that 
season one has played itself completely out. Uh, this was kind of my, my premonition for what the ending of season one would look like. Um, and luckily for fans of the show, this is not what happened, but the, suffice it to say, the main character, Laura, um, spoiler alert, but she survives the first season and (laughs) this story is actually written um, given the consideration that at the end of season one we would see Laura um, in my mind potentially not making it and then two remaining main characters Carmilla who is a vampire and Danny who is a very tall uh, ginger Buffy-esque character um, survive. So it, it's all about how Carmilla and Danny, who both very clearly have uh, romantic feelings for Laura in the series, again, sorry, but some spoilers here, um, how they would handle the sudden loss of Laura. And so this, uh, this story, again, um, relating to the series Carmilla, and it's entitled Slow Disaster. And this is by me, Molly Catherine. Laura was lost. In the most literal sense, truly. They'd eventually recovered La Fontaine and another couple of frosh girls who had been taken almost completely intact, though at great personal risk to themselves. And that risk had been realized by Laura's disappearance. Not even a cookie crumb was left behind in her wake, just a postcard, like the ones they had become all too familiar with over the past two semesters of battling the forces of darkness. The message, however expected it had been, was devastating. When Carmilla had read it, in the center of the room she had shared with Laura, Danny looking on over her shoulder... She had felt the world stop spinning. We told you this would happen, it said. That was it. That was the extent of the message, and it was exquisitely torturous. Both Carmilla and Danny were wrecked. They spent that first night together, but apart. Carmilla curled up like a cat in her bed, wrapped around Laura's yellow pillow as if it were an anchor, and maybe it was. And Danny sprawled out on Laura's sheets as if she could soak up the last remnants of the girl her heart had dared to love. The school year ended. Silas University matriculates dispersed to wherever it is. Silas University matriculates go during the summertime off to do whatever it is Silas University matriculates do when they're not at Silas University. Carmilla packed a duffel with a few shirts, a couple pairs of pants, and some bags of blood, threw on her leather jacket and glasses, swept through the library to make off with some reading material, and left, fully intent on never coming back to Silas again. And while Danny, with only one year left of school, would have loved to walk away from Silas forever, she couldn't, in good conscience, do so. Instead, she visited her aunt and uncle who lived a ways outside Wexford, and she tried forgetting about her troubles, if only for a couple of months. But reality has its way of slapping you in the face, 
Midway through summer, Carmilla was hiking in Peru. Her legs hadn't let her stop moving, not even for a night. When she found a letter addressed to her, sticking out of a tree held in place with a knife right in her path, she sighed. Every time, she grumbled to herself, yanking out the knife, which immediately disintegrated into a million billion particles of dust, and clutched the letter in her fingers. Even as she read the letter, she hadn't realized that she had already made the decision to go back. Really, it was too late for her. Silas belonged to the memory of Laura, and Carmilla belonged to that memory. Of course she would be going back. But other decisions still remained. Dear Silas U. Student, with the fall semester fast approaching, we require your housing preferences. Please see the attached form. Fill it out, close your eyes, crumple it up into a ball, and toss it over your left shoulder to deliver the completed form to us. Wishing you well, wherever you are, you can't stay away forever. Silas U. Student Housing Services. Carmilla's lip curled at the text that had been marked through. You can't stay away forever. Wondering if that was a special Carmilla edition from the dean, or a legitimate edition that all students received. Whatever. It didn't particularly matter. She flipped the piece of paper over to reveal the form she was supposed to fill out. There was a list of residence halls with check boxes, if the applicant had a preference, and a line at the bottom that read roommate placement preference without even thinking Carmilla pulled a pencil out of the side of her pack her fingers ached to write Laura's name maybe if she willed it so if she wished and pleaded with the universe hard enough then the girl would be there on day one a miracle of grape soda and chocolate chips and lavender shampoo Carmilla thanked whatever higher powers that be for her inability to cry. And she wrote a name, the first name that came to her mind, but also the only name that made any sense. When she crumpled it up and tossed it over her left shoulder, she immediately turned around to look, but it was already gone. Her shoulders rose and fell with a heavy sigh, then she turned and headed back down the path she had been climbing. It was a long way back to Styria, and she supposed she had some sort of weird cosmic obligation to the place. She was just the tiniest bit afraid of what kind of obligation the place had to her. Danny, thousands of miles away from the mountains of Peru, sat and stared contemplatively at the message she had received tucked beneath her pillow that morning when she'd awoken. She'd been staring for quite some time. It seemed that was all she'd been capable of doing all summer. She stared at sheep. She stared at moors. She stared at her rambunctious little cousins as they raised all manner of hell. She stared when the sun came out, when it went away, when it rained, when it sleeted, when the winds blew or when they didn't. And now she stared at the line onto which she had the option of jotting down her roommate preference. Danny had an answer, of course. Laura, Laura, Laura. Simple enough, right? Wrong.
She had gone through two pencils and three ballpoint pens in an attempt to write the missing girl's name, but it was like the paper knew. For each time she finished writing Laura, it would simply disappear. It had been hours, and now all Danny could do was stare. The light was fading, pulling back across the room she had spent a good deal of the last six weeks existing in, and darkness was creeping forward in its wake. By the time it was completely dark, Danny had made up her mind. She didn't need light to write these letters. She didn't need sight to see that this was the only plausible choice remaining to her. What she did need, she realized, was someone to help her feel less alone. When she tossed the crumbled form over her shoulder, she didn't hear it hit the floor. Whatever, she sighed, laying down on the bed and performing her nightly ritual of tears, the bone-shaking, heart-wrenching kind. Neither was surprised to see the other on move-in day, and they didn't say a word, not even when Danny extracted the yellow pillow from her things and tossed it onto Carmilla's bed, nor when Carmilla placed a tray of cookies on the empty desk, cookies that neither of them would ever have the stomach to eat. They didn't talk for three days, three days of trying not to bump into each other in the middle of their new dorm room, three nights of mutual devastating loneliness from six feet apart. Every night, the same. Danny cries, Carmilla lays, scarily still and silent, lacrimal glands dry up, both roommates toss and turn relentlessly, unable to find sleep. Around three in the morning, Carmilla huffs, grabs her leather jacket, storms out of the room, gently closing the door behind her. Carmilla does whatever vampires do at three in the morning, and Danny curls into herself, her grip digging into the edge of her mattress like it's the only lifeline she's been afforded in this place called hell that dares to masquerade as a university. But the fourth night is when everything changes. Danny hadn't let herself cry yet. Really, she'd been too busy stealing her resolve, but enough was enough. She stood, patted her way over to the blood-sucking fiend's bed, and she joined Carmilla beneath the cool covers, somehow devoid of all body heat, though Danny supposed as she melded herself to the bed's other occupant that maybe Carmilla didn't emanate heat like a regular person. That would make sense, wouldn't it? <sighs> she was distracting herself. Carmilla's back was to Danny's front. Danny realized that this was okay. No need for eye contact. Not now, at least. And as Danny wrapped her arm around her roommate's middle, as she pressed her face into that dark, wild hair, she finally allowed herself to cry. And something about these tears as they were shed from her ducks made Danny feel like they would be the last of their kind. Well, maybe not the last. The last wouldn't come for a very, very long time, as it turned out, but maybe they would stop hurting so much eventually. Yes, 
That sounded promising. Carmilla didn't move at all when the tallest ginger she knows filled the empty space at her back, and Carmilla didn't move when she felt that strong arm wrap around her. She didn't even move when warm breath caressed her neck and tears dampened her hair. It was a few moments later that she finally did move, her hand now resting on top of the arm that was clutching her tightly, her fingers pressing gently into warm, trembling flesh, and she's holding on with the tips of her fingers while Danny is holding on with the entirety of her body. They still weren't talking, but that was okay. The days and nights continued much in the same vein. Sometimes they conversed, sometimes they didn't. And when the lavender shampoo that they shared ran out a few weeks later, neither of them commented on the new bottle that appeared the same day. Despite the refilled hair products, the yellow pillow they shared beneath their heads every night smelled less and less like Laura every morning. They held each other tighter then, and... It wasn't okay. They knew that. But it was something. And the third story that I'm going to read is from the uh, Faberi fandom. This is actually a story that was written for February week, um, which is a, a week that happens one or two times a year um, when the whole fandom of February gets together and votes for different prompts. And there's seven days in a row um, full of prompts and wonderful stories and artwork and playlists and all sorts of things are put together for these prompts. And the story that I'm going to read today is called um, Doppelgangers, simply, um, because that was the prompt uh, for this day of February week. Um, very much inspired by a story that my uncle told me once. And suffice it to say, um, as you hear the story, uh, my, my uncle is one of those people who apparently just has one of those faces. So again, this is Doppelgangers by me. Molly Catherine. What do you mean he just kissed you? Unfortunately, this line was not an unfamiliar one to Quinn Fabray. Her wife's tone, now bordering on exasperated, had often been openly hostile during their early years. Even so far back as that blissful time known as dating, Rachel had been skeptical at best and suspicious at worst when Quinn would mention these strange encounters she tended to have. "'You know I didn't encourage him,' she replied, her tone airy. There really was no explaining it. Rachel harumphed. I just don't know what could have made him think he had the right. Quinn sighed. You know that I just have one of those faces. You keep saying that, Rachel said. But you know my opinion on the issue. Your face is a one-of-a-kind masterpiece. I just don't see how all of those people can possibly think they recognize you. Another sigh left her lips, and Quinn suppressed a roll of her eyes, though it would have been done in a loving manner. The first time it had happened, 
Quinn had been a junior in high school. She had been with the Cheerios in Florida for the national cheerleading competition. The day was hot and slightly muggy, and Quinn had been sitting at a restaurant's outdoor table with Brittany and Santana when it had happened. Alice! Someone yelled. All three girls ignored this call as it obviously wasn't intended for them. Alice? The voice was closer now, causing Quinn to look up from the fashion magazine she had been flipping through. The sunglasses she wore obscured her eyes from the stranger, but the perfectly arched brow conveyed her interest. This person was talking to them. Why was this person talking to them? Can we help you? Santana's voice cut through the awkward tension. There was a man, probably somewhere in his 20s, standing before them, looking oddly dashing, but still wildly out of place in their peaceful afternoon of freedom. Quinn removed her glasses, her hazel eyes now sparkling with curiosity. Oh. His voice immediately became disappointed, though his sight had never left Quinn's face. She felt his gaze flitting across her facial features keenly. "'I'm so sorry,' he said, rubbing his hand against the back of his head, now more than a little embarrassed. "'You... you look like her. You look so much like her. It's uncanny, but, I mean, your eyes are totally different.' Quinn's mouth gaped momentarily. "'Sorry?' she suggested." It's all good. Uh, have a nice day, ladies. And then he was gone. That had been the first time it had happened, or at least it was the first time Quinn could remember. And while it was the first, it certainly hadn't been the last. During senior year, a middle-aged woman had hugged Quinn randomly at the National Glee Club competition in Chicago, only to pull back with a smile that had quickly faded from her face. Quinn had apologized because the look of disappointment on the other woman's face had been too sad for her to bear. Her freshman year of college, Quinn had made friends with a girl named Ashley. It was only two years later that Ashley had admitted to sitting next to Quinn that second week of their literary theory class because she'd been powerfully reminded by Quinn of a girl she'd known once back when they were children. There were another two less fortuitous encounters in college, one apiece during Quinn's junior and senior years, when other women had approached her while out clubbing with friends. One had absolutely demanded to know why Quinn had stolen Alex away from her. Why? The other had outright slapped Quinn's unwitting and later utterly incredulous face. The less violent interaction had ended with the other woman stomping off, irate, completely disbelieving Quinn's fervent non-involvement in the matter of Alex. And the latter had resulted in the offending woman buying Quinn and her friends a round of drinks. The summer after Quinn had graduated from college, she had been sitting at her gate in the airport waiting to board a cross-country flight home after visiting Brittany and Santana in Los Angeles. In her hands, she held a paperback book, and her fingertips gently turned the pages every so often. The sounds around her were dulled by the story playing out in her head. And then her vision had abruptly been disturbed. A hand had been on her cheek, and the rough 
stubble of a man's facial hair had been scratching against her skin, his mouth on hers. Quinn had not been flattered. She had been offended. And she had been cold to the man who had tried to maintain his innocence. I thought you were someone I knew once. Then she's lucky she doesn't know you anymore. At least once every few months, Quinn would be stopped by a stranger on the street, or in a bookshop, or at a Starbucks. They would take the seat next to her on the train to catch up, or offer to buy her favorite drink at a bar, or to remind her of that one time. But Quinn never knew them. She never remembered. Quinn Fabray just had one of those faces. When she had reconnected with Rachel Berry, there had been a point in time where she tried to explain this concept. But Rachel was skeptical, and she maintained her skepticism for a long time. I have a sixth sense, Quinn, and I don't feel that you're a clone. But it wasn't that, Quinn was sure. It wasn't a set of experiences based on science fiction. It was a set of experiences born from humanity's desire to see the familiar in the unfamiliar. It had happened once, just after Quinn had left Rachel's apartment after a lovely date. Lucy? A woman's voice called out, hesitantly. Her voice carried easily on the relatively quiet street so late at night. Quinn's head snapped up at the familiar name, Her brow was furrowed, steeped in anxiety that she had never fully managed to rid herself of. It was only a second or two before her eyes locked on a woman across the street, a woman looking up and down the road both ways before heading across to where Quinn was standing. The woman was not someone Quinn recognized, but she felt a pull in her gut at the sight of her, and she quickly wondered if this was the same feeling people had been feeling all these years at the sight of her. Lucy? the woman repeated, just before she reached Quinn. Quinn shook her head, not in the gesture of an outright no, but in a sign of confusion. I'm sorry, but do I know you? The woman had reached out upon getting to Quinn's side of the street, and her right hand had grabbed a hold of Quinn's left. The touch was gentle, a thumb rubbed against Quinn's index finger, almost apologetic. Oh the woman breathed. I I really thought, it's okay, Quinn reassured. It actually happens all the time. They smiled bashfully at each other. It's funny, though. This is the first time I've felt like I know the other person, too. Really? (laughs) A chuckle from the stranger that sounded of relief. Well, I guess that's at least mildly reassuring. At least, Quinn agreed. I, uh, I have to get going. You take care, uh, Lucy, Quinn interrupted. That, that actually is my name. The woman's eyes widened in surprise. I haven't gone by it in years. Wow. I mean, I knew my Lucy much more recently, but thank you for not thinking I'm some freak. Have a good night. And then the woman was gone, and Quinn cursed herself for not at least getting a card from her, something to prove to Rachel that these interactions could not possibly be made up. But this last, 
This last one was a doozy. It, it wasn't any more or less invasive than the kiss all those years ago at the airport. But it was during a time when Quinn was married. And while she wasn't at fault, she didn't like secrets, and so she'd sat her wife down to explain, and the response she'd received was quite unexpected. Well, Rachel said, all right, okay, there's obviously only one answer remaining to us. Really? Quinn responded, amused by her wife's suddenly prim disposition and unmistakable air of authority regarding the matter. Yes, I am revisiting the clone theory. Quinn laughed. Rachel smiled and pounced. They fell back on the couch, giggles interspersing their kisses like jimmies on ice cream, and just as sweet. Because, of course, Quinn wasn't a clone. That, that would be silly. The end. All three of these stories have been written and read by me, Molly Catherine. Thank you so much for listening.